On September 13, 2004, Oprah had a celebration for her 19th season on television. This isn't pro or anti-Oprah, it's just a story. And during the celebration, she had invited her guests the week before to recommend family members who were driving around junkers. And so they sent in recommendations, and 276 people came, individuals who had junkers. One couple had 400,000 miles on their vehicle. Another said, my son's car looked like it had been a gunfight because of all the holes. And during the show, she called up 11 people, and she gave them $28,000 Pontiac G6s. You can imagine their joy. They went from junkers to brand new cars. And everybody was filled with joy for these 11. Then she said to the rest of the audience, I've got good news. I've got one car left. And she handed out boxes. No one was allowed to open their box until everyone opened. She said, one of you has a key. And then she said, go. And they all opened their boxes. And there was hooping and hollering and yelling and clapping. And, and everyone had a key. And she said, everyone gets a car. Everyone gets a car. Can you imagine? A $28,000 car given to all 276 people. They went out in the parking lot and they got their car. Well, a few months later, all was not well in Oprah land. Because although they had given the cars $28,000, they had paid the licensing fee. The IRS tacked $28,000 of income onto everyone. And so people had to pay federal tax. Some had to pay state tax. And most said, hey, that's okay, I got a free car out of it. But a number were angry and bitter and said, it shouldn't be this way. You offered me a free car and it's not free. And they were angry at Oprah and they were angry at the show and they grumbled and they complained. And I think to myself, well, I would love it if uh, someone would give me a free car, but then I'd probably grumble and complain because I don't want a Pontiac. They've been They've been gone since 2010 anyway. If I get a free car, I want a Jeep Wrangler. And so I'm kind of a grumbler and complainer myself. To this Paul writes in Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or complaining, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We know the context well, do we not? We've gone over it over and again. Paul is writing in AD 61. It's at the backside of four years, three months of difficulty. According to Acts 23 to 26, he was in a Judean prison in northern Israel for two years for a crime he didn't commit. He's been rotting there. And remember, you pay to be in prison. And he had to have friends come every day to bring food and water or he would have perished in prison. He can't get his case before the magistrate. It just never comes up. So finally, thinking he's going to rot in prison, as a Roman citizen, he appeals to the Caesar who is Nero from AD 54 to 68. Nero is a butcher of a man, yet he has no choice. He appeals for a case in front of Nero. So as a prisoner, he's put on an Alexandrian grain ship without a V-haul but a flatbed haul. And like so many of these Alexandrian grain ships, his sunk off the island of Malta. He and the rest were saved. They build a fire and out of the wood comes a viper that sinks its fangs into Paul. He's kind of having a bad toe of it. And then he's there for the winter as a prisoner. He finally gets to Rome and he remains a prisoner under the Praetorian Guard. 
four years, three months of difficulty. And in this circumstance, he writes what? Do all things without complaining and grumbling. And I say, wow, that's incredible. He's had a very tough run of it. Some of us feel like we've had a tough run of it, right? There's so much things, difficulties, disagreements, tough times in our life. Mask, no mask. Pro-governor, anti-governor, pro-president, anti-president. Believe in the CDC, don't believe in the CDC. Go to school, virtual school. There's so much turmoil. And yet, what does Paul say? Do all things without grumbling and complaining. And then he goes on to say, so that you may what? Shine as lights. In other words, the result of not grumbling and complaining, is that our testimony before an unbelieving world is intact. We don't grumble and complain so that we can shine as lights in a wicked and twisted, perverse generation. That's what the text says. A week or so ago, a friend of mine who I've been sharing the gospel with, he called me up. He wanted to get together. I didn't know why. What he wanted to ask is this. He said, I I know some Christ followers and I've been reading their stuff on Facebook and they're so angry, they're so bitter, they're so filled with hatred. How can they claim Christ and yet be filled with such anger and bitterness and hatred? How do the two go together? What was he asking? Without knowing it, he was asking the question of Philippians 2, 14 and 15. How can we be publicly grumbling and complaining and publicly shining as lights to a twisted and dark generation? He was saying, these don't go together. Paul was saying, these don't go together. And so that's convicting to my heart. About the same time, a pastor I greatly admire, some of you know him, his name is Pastor Isidro and his wife, Lucy. He wrote this on Facebook. He said, with much peace and joy, I inform my friends that I am positive to COVID-19, all capitals, God has control. And so my friend, this pastor, is COVID-19, not in Wausau with world-class medical help, but in Barrio George the Dominican, good doctors, but underserviced doctors, doctors without all the right medications and the advanced techniques. And so I contacted my friend, Pastor Isidro. I said, what can I do? Can I send money? I'd be happy to send you money so that you can go to a big city to get the medical help you need. What do you need? And he wrote back and said, I love you, my friend. I'm good. All I need is prayer. I offered money. I offered other tangible things. He said, no, God's in control, and I need prayer. When I grow up in Christ, I want to be like the Apostle Paul, who can go through four years and three months of tyranny and say, do all things without grumbling and complaining. I I want to be like Pastor Isidro and his wife, Lucy. I want to be the individual who shines as a light, even in the midst of a difficult time in our lives. Father God, help us to shine as lights in a challenging time for our betterment and your great glory, the advancement of your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Have you ever thought about how many things 
we might waste as Americans? For example, America, on average, wastes 30% of the food that's purchased. 30% of the, the food purchased gets thrown away. That's $161 billion worth of food every single year. Talk about a waste. Americans are also pretty good at wasting time. The average 16 to 24-year-old spends three hours a day on social media. That's a part-time job, 21 hours a week. We're not getting that time back. As a whole, Americans are pretty good at wasting money. $1.8 billion a year gets wasted on unused gym memberships. <laughs> Hopefully you and I aren't part of that statistic. Or Americans spend $7 billion a year on ATM fees, money that you're never getting back. And we might talk about wasting time, money, food, but how often do we talk about wasting suffering? And that was one of my favorite phrases, one of the, the most memorable parts of our Philippians series, a phrase that Pastor Jeff used early on, don't waste the suffering. And that came right from Philippians chapter 1, where Paul writes this in verses 12 to 14. And I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. We've got to remember the context. The year is 61 AD and Paul's in his first Roman imprisonment, but he'd already been in prison for two years. And then he hops on a boat that gets shipwrecked and finally he makes it to Rome and then he's waiting in prison again. Not an ideal situation. And we've got to remember why he's in prison. It's for preaching the gospel. It's for doing the exact work that God had planned for him and it lands him in prison. Uncomfortable at best, probably more like a horrible living situation, probably not enough food, not enough water, not comfortable, no freedom, no fresh air, no human relationships. This is not the place that Paul or you or I would want to be. But think about how he begins verse 12. I want you to know that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. Paul, what are you talking about? That doesn't make sense. How can you being in a prison cell, sidelined, one of the best missionaries, one of the best preachers in the history of the world, sidelined and it served to advance the gospel? Because Paul didn't waste the suffering. And I can guarantee that every single guard that was put there to make sure that Paul never escaped heard the gospel. Every single one of them heard what Jesus had done for them. And then Paul says that because he was confident in the Lord in the midst of his imprisonment, it encouraged the other brothers to be confident in the Lord and keep preaching the word without fear. And Paul doesn't mention it in this text, but you and I both know what, what Paul spent a lot of his time doing when he was in prison. He wrote and wrote and wrote. Many of his epistles were written from a cold, dark prison cell, leaving a legacy that far outlasted his lifetime. Paul refused to waste the suffering, but used it as leverage for the gospel. And I think for many of us, there can be this idea that when suffering comes, we just shut down, that we maybe throw ourselves a pity party or just wait for the storm to pass. But that's not what Paul did. That's not what God wants us to do. Did you know that he has a plan for us in the midst of the pain, that he wants to use us in the midst of our suffering for his purposes, and for his glory. And as you and I look at the last six months, for many of us, they've not been easy. 
Maybe the struggles, the challenges, the trials have been COVID-related. Maybe some of them were not. But as we look back at the last couple of months, how might we evaluate ourselves? How have we done? Have we wasted the suffering or have we used it for the, the advance of the gospel and for the glory of God? Have we spent more time in His Word and in prayer? Have we looked for opportunities to build relationships with our neighbors? Have we found ways to serve the community? Have we looked for ways to share the gospel? Or have we complained? Have we just spent endless hours on social media or on TV? Have we wasted the suffering? I'm not sure how the last couple of months have gone for you, But for all of us, instead of just looking in the rearview mirror, we need to look to the future. We need to look ahead because that phrase, don't waste the suffering, is not just a COVID phrase. It is a lifetime phrase because God never promised that our life would be easy. Our life is probably going to be filled with trials, with struggles, and with challenges. They're not all going to be related to a virus. They might be in the form of a lost job or a lost relationship, an untimely death or an unfortunate diagnosis. The trials are going to come. But God has a plan for us. He wants to use us in the midst of the valley, in the midst of the struggle for His glory. And for years, Brian Niemeyer has included this phrase at the end of his emails that has always stuck with me. Keep looking up. And I've always wanted to plagiarize it, so I'm going to plagiarize it today. Because I think that's a great paradigm. It's a great perspective for us to have in the midst of the struggle. Instead of looking down on the trial, on the struggle, on the pain, we need to keep looking up, looking up to Jesus, the one who loved us enough to die for us, who lived in our place, who's resurrected, is now seated at the right hand of God, that when we look to Jesus, the pain's not as bad. The suffering isn't as hard. When we look to Jesus, he will ensure that we don't waste the suffering. So church family, the next time the struggle comes, the next time a trial comes, let's commit together to take a step back and just pray a simple prayer. Lord, allow me not to waste the suffering. Use me for your glory in the midst of this trial. And when I think of a person that embodied that prayer, I think of a man named William Carey, often considered the father of modern missions, one of the first missionaries to India. He's often remembered for that phrase, for that tweet, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. What a great phrase. But we often forget the challenges that he faced in his first years in ministry in India. Right after arriving in 1793, he wrote this, I'm in a strange land, no Christian friend, and a large family and nothing to supply their wants. We might hope that things got better for William, but they didn't. They just got worse. He contracted malaria, was deathly ill. His five-year-old son got dysentery and passed away, sending his wife into hysteria that she never recovered from and passed away in 1807. The first couple of years were brutal, But he kept learning the language. He kept preaching. He kept translating Scripture. And it took seven years for him to see his first convert. Imagine how easy it would have been to throw in the towel, to go back home, to quit. But he didn't. He didn't waste the suffering. And after a lifetime of ministry in India, he saw 700 converts. He and his team translated parts of the Bible into 209 languages and dialects. Most importantly, he laid the foundation for modern missions and inspired countless others to do the same, to not waste the suffering. 
Because for you and I, the trial is going to come. The suffering is going to come. And God desires to use us for his glory in the midst of the pain. Don't waste the suffering. The uh, part of Philippians that I have chosen to speak about today is the humility of Jesus shown in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 that read as follows. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name. These are two of the most amazing verses in the Bible. Who could possibly believe that something like this could happen? We can read them, but we can't truly grasp the depth of them, and we won't be able to until we see Jesus in his glorious presence in heaven. Then we will know the greatness of his sacrifice and the cost that he paid to conquer death and through it to give us eternal life. Humility is considered a weakness in our society today, and yet God considers it to be one of the highest Christian virtues. That should tell us something about our society. The opposite of humility is pride. Pride was the downfall of Satan, who wanted to be like God. He passed the sin of pride on to our first parents, Adam and Eve, when he said to them, concerning eating the forbidden fruit, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. That was the end for us, because sin entered the world, and with sin came death, both temporal and eternal. Humility is not only rare in the world, it is also a rare quality in the church today as well. The reason for that is that we, like Adam and Eve, struggle to deal with our own pride and often lose the battle. Humility is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit, but he enables us to become humble. If we, like Jesus, will be obedient to the word of our Heavenly Father. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore under God's mighty hand, that you may be lifted up in due time. It is by our own choosing that we humble ourselves. We must make that decision on our own. We do that by allowing the Holy Spirit to have his way in our hearts and lives as we choose to obey the word of God. Proverbs says, Let another man praise you and not your own lips. Jesus gave his disciples an example of this in Luke 14, verses 8 through 11. He said to them, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you might have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to you and say, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when the host comes to you, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. At one point in time, Carol and I and Leslie were invited to a Hindu wedding. We knew the father of the bride, 
who was from India, and uh, his wife was deceased, and she was marrying a Caucasian person, and uh, there were about 200 guests. There were 100 Indians and 100 uh, Caucasians, and as we went to the wedding, I said to Leslie and Carol, we're going to sit in the back, don't say anything, don't do anything, we will simply observe the wedding. And that's what we did. And uh, the, the Hindu holy man that performed the wedding came from Chicago. And as he began the wedding, he said to us, normally this ceremony takes six hours, but for your benefit, I have shortened it to an hour and a half. And everybody was happy to hear that. And so when the wedding was over, we went into the reception hall for the meal. And again, Carol and I and Leslie sat in the back. And uh, as the reception was about to begin, they were just about to serve. And the father of the bride stood up. And he was looking all around the, uh, the hall. And he was the only person standing, so everyone was keeping an eye on him. And he started to walk through the crowd. And he walked all the way through the crowd to the back of the hall to our table. And he said to Carol and I and Leslie, you can't sit here. I have saved a place for you up by my table, and you must come up there and sit by me. And so we got up and followed him. And let me tell you, it was a humiliating experience to be exalted. Uh, everybody was looking at us, and he was very insistent that we follow him up to the front. May we be like the sinner in the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You'll remember how Jesus told that story to his disciples. He said one day a, a Pharisee and a tax collector came to the temple to pray. And as they went in and started to pray, the Pharisee raised his eyes to heaven and he said, Lord, I thank you I, like, that I'm not like other men, not robbers or extortioners or adulterers or even like this tax collector here. And he began to tell God all the good things he had done for him. And Jesus said the tax collector never even lifted his eyes to heaven. He bowed his head and he smote his breast with his hand and he said, Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. And Jesus told his disciples it was the tax collector who went home justified that day. For everyone who is exalted, who exalts himself, will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. May we want to be like the tax collector who humbled himself before God. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, I was driving home in my old car, which was a stunning maroon 2005 Nissan Altima, the envy of all college students. Okay, not really at all. Even though I loved this car, it was a bucket of junk. It was covered in deep scratches and door dings. Three of the four door handles actually snapped off during the years that I owned it. And this particular car broke down on me four different times. This was one of those occasions it broke down on me. 
So I'm coming down an off-ramp and I'm going into a left-hand turn. The light is turning yellow. I really wanna make this light because it lasts forever. So I'm speeding into the turn and then suddenly out of nowhere, my car just breaks down right there in the middle of the on-ramp. My power steering cuts off, my engine stalls, the entire car just shuts down right as I'm going into this intersection. And I did what I probably shouldn't have done. I panicked and hit the brakes. So now I'm stuck in the middle of the traffic with cars driving towards me at 45 miles an hour, not a great place. Thankfully, all those cars slowed down and I was spared being T-boned, but I had to get out of my car and do the walk of shame, pushing my car to the nearest side of the road. So as I'm sitting there, I have no idea what's going on. My car's never done this before. I can't get it to restart. Finally, after half an hour, it restarts and I can get it to a garage. Now, there were all sorts of problems that have been going on leading up to this, and I should have recognized that. But as all broke college students, I was delaying the inevitable and tried not to take it in. But the moral of the story, cars don't fix themselves. They tend to get worse. So I take it to the garage and the mechanic, and the next day he calls me and he figures out what's going wrong. And he tells me something I never expected. He said that the key to my car went bad. Inside all of our keys are something called a transponder chip that communicates with the anti-theft system of a car. Apparently, my chip was corrupted. So my car thought that I had hotwired it and was trying to steal it, so it just immediately shut down the entire car. I'd never had that happen, never even heard of that. It was quite the experience. But I want to think about that story because I think it shows us a really interesting principle. One tiny key can bring down the whole system if you're not using the proper key. And I think that's a really good analogy for our lives. In Philippians 1.21, Paul gives us the key to the Christ-centered life. And in the book of Philippians, Paul is really outlining the key for how we can experience uncircumstantial joy, how we can experience lasting peace in our lives, and how we can have unshakable hope. However, those things are only discovered and found when we use the right key. And that's the big takeaway from my time in the book of Philippians, because we live in a world where there's so many counterfeit keys saying that they can unlock joy, hope, meaning, and satisfaction. But in the end, none of them can. Many people in our culture look to the key of money. They trust that having a certain amount of money or wealth can unlock satisfaction and meaning in their lives. That's one of the biggest lies our culture tells us, that we can unlock happiness if we just have a little bit more. But having a little more never satisfies, does it? Some look to the key of romance or relationships. They think that they can find joy and hope and happiness if they just find the right person, if they find their soulmate. But the problem is, if you are putting your trust in another person as your savior, sinful people make terrible saviors because no one's perfect. And in the end, they'll always let us down. That, That key can't unlock what it promises. Some look to the key of entertainment. They think that having a lot of fun or being able to pursue their hobbies without any limit is gonna make their life worthwhile and fulfilling. A lot of people try to numb the lingering question in their spirit that says, isn't there something more to life than this? Some look to the key of success in their career to unlock a peaceful life. They think that being the best at what they do or getting some promotion or an award or recognition is going to make them peaceful and happy, but they realize there's always another rung on the ladder. There's always another mountain to climb. And no matter how hard they try, it never satisfies. And just think about this last year. We've learned that our security, our our jobs, even our health, 
They're not guaranteed. They can be taken away in a moment. None of those keys have the power to unlock peace and joy and meaning and hope, things that we all desire. None of those things can unlock a meaningful life. They all fall short. And that's so important because as these things rise and fall with the unpredictability of life, so will our hope and joy and peace and happiness. We need a better key. And in Philippians 1.21, Paul gives us the key to the Christ-centered life. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says, if you want to unlock lasting joy, unshakable peace and confident hope, the true key to the Christ-centered life is this. You have to be captivated by Christ. That's what this verse is about. That should be our motto. That's really my life verse. I love the power of these words. A reminder that we need to be captivated by Christ. Right now, there's so many things in our world that we can be captivated by. We can be captivated by the doom and gloom news. We can be captivated by politics. We can be captivated by uh, our health, by the pandemic, by all of these other things. But the thing that we need to be captivated by is Christ alone. I love the two Two lessons that we see why being captivated by Christ is the key to a truly satisfying and fulfilling life in this verse. To live as Christ, to die as gain. Two quick things. First, Christ alone is a cause worth living for. To live for Christ. Everything else in this world is fleeting and temporary. We can't invest our life in things that don't matter the moment our life ends. Christ alone promises that we can have a life that is worth living for. That'll last in eternity. And that's the second part. To die is gain. Christ alone is a king worth dying for. We're reminded that to die is gain because Jesus loved us so much that he made a way for us to have a right relationship with the Lord. And when this life ends, it's just the beginning of our eternal life with Christ. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Right now, I know there are so many things that can stress us, cause us to feel anxious and fearful. But now more than ever, let's remember the key to the Christ in our life is to be captivated by Christ. Let that be true in our lives. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Father, our journey through the book of Philippians has been powerful. It's been comforting. It's also been convicting. Because to be honest, Father, there are many things that compete for our attention. There are many counterfeits that we can be captivated by. But Father, we know those counterfeits will never bring joy. They'll never bring hope. They'll never bring peace. Those counterfeits fall short because the only thing with the power to unlock a meaningful and joyful life is a relationship with Christ. So allow Philippians 1.21 to be true of our lives. For us to live is for Christ's honor and glory. And help us to realize that the end of this life is truly just, just gain because we get to be with you. And Father, as we continue to walk through unprecedented times, I pray that these lessons from the book of Philippians can, can go deep into our hearts and transform us to find joy in Jesus. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this amazing book. We pray these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.